you turn with me again in your copy of God's Word to the New Testament. Our reading this morning can be found on page 812, if you're using the Pew Bibles in the rack in front of you. We are in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. We paused last week in our sermon series through Matthew to look at Psalm 16. We return this morning to a very familiar passage, one of many famous uh, verses in uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, may be the most well-known verse to unbelievers or non-Christians uh, in our Bibles. The first words, judge not. You may have heard those words less from fellow Christians uh, and more from people that don't even believe the Bible who want to tell you as the people of God how you are to act and you are to live. It's a strange experience uh, having somebody who doesn't believe in our God, quote our scriptures and telling us how we are to obey them. Uh, I must confess that I myself have been defensive at times uh, when these verses are quoted uh, to me by someone that doesn't even believe the God who wrote them. That being said, these are Jesus' words. These are not the words of the world shaking their finger at the church. These are the words of our God teaching us as his children, as his disciples, how to live in his kingdom. And so that's who we hear it from this morning. Let's shake off the baggage of the frustrating ways that this verse has been misapplied and misused and come to it as much as we can with fresh ears and hear what God actually has to say to us in his word this morning. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 6. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Would you go with me in prayer? Oh Lord, we need your help in understanding this text. Lord, we need the help of your spirit to break down any stubbornness or resistance in our hearts to your clear word to us this morning. Lord, we pray as we interact with the familiar and the unfamiliar parts, that you would indeed be teaching us, you would be growing us, you would be discipling us as your people, that with godly discernment, we would grow to see others as you see them, and we would treat others as you treat us. We ask for your help, your guidance, your clear word to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an old game show on TV, some of you may remember, it was called Friend or Foe. The premise of the game show was to bring two strangers together, pair them together on the show, and they would try to answer some questions and win some prize money. But then once they had some prize money, they put each one against the other, and the two strangers tried to convince the other person to give them all of their money. Tried to figure out how to convince one to the other or the other way around 
to release their money to their friend. Each contestant had to decide in the moment if the person they just met was a friend or a foe, or to use the biblical language, they had to exercise discernment. Who were they working with? Who were they interacting with? A friend or a foe? And once they knew the answer to that question, friend or foe, they knew exactly how to treat the person in front of them. Well, Jesus in Matthew 7 is not giving us a strategy for winning a game show. Rather, he is giving us a path for how to live in his kingdom. How do we interact with people around us? How do we discern what type of people we are talking to, we are hearing from, we are fellowshipping with, we are evangelizing? Are they friends or are they foes? We're going to see in this text this morning a contrast in verses 1 to 5 with working with certain types of people. We'll call those people friends. And then verse 6, working or interacting with other types of people, we'll call those people foes. And in this contrast, or maybe, maybe I'll say in a moment, in this extreme, two extremes of how to interact with people, we're going to see that by the grace of God, we learn to see and treat others the way that God sees and treats us. By the grace of God, we learn to see and treat others the way that God sees and treats us. Chapter 7 of the Sermon on the Mount takes a turn. So far in the first two chapters, Jesus is shining this bright light to the depths of our soul. And he is saying to us, you don't measure yourself and your own righteousness, or lack thereof, by your actions. The measurement of who you are is your heart. And so whether he's talking about treasures Uh, whether he's talking about masters, whether he's talking about obeying the law externally or internally, talking about the motivation for prayer and for giving and for fasting, he is over and over and over again directing our attention, not from what we do, but uh, but to our own hearts. And after two chapters of beating this home to us, we now switch and we look out at other people. And the problem with how we evaluate other people is we can't use that same standard. Why not? Because we can't see other people's hearts. Only God knows our heart, and we see our own hearts through the lens of God. But we can't see other people's hearts. What do we see? Their actions. So how do we treat other people? How do we interact in a world in which we are supposed to judge ourselves, evaluate ourselves by our own hearts, when what we see in other people are only their actions? actions. Well, as Jesus teaches us, he gives us these two extremes about how we react to what other people do or say. The first extreme in verses one to five is a rush to judge. The first extreme is we see actions that other people perform that we don't like or agree with, and we rush to judge them. You know those first two words of verse 7. You have heard them repeatedly throughout your life, whether you grew up in the church or not. It's one of those phrases that is sort of transitioned from God's word also in sort of the morality of the world. Don't judge other people. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, he can't mean that we shouldn't have civil trials with earthly judges. He's not disbanding the civil court system. That is something that God institutes and God supports in his word. So it's not that. 
He's also not speaking against Christians exercising wise discernment. Right? He's not telling us that we are not to evaluate anything that we see. That we're not to use the, the, the pattern or the rubric or the lens of God's law and his word to evaluate and discern what is happening in the world around us, what is being said to us, who the types of people we interact with. Rather, when Jesus is speaking to us as his people, living in his kingdom and telling us not to judge, he is telling us not to have a judgmental spirit. He is telling us not to condemn others. He is telling us not to rush to judge others. Some of you are involved in the professional legal field. And so you are involved regularly with court cases or earthly judgments. Some of you, like myself, are elders, and we are involved in ecclesiastical trials or courts in which we have to cast judgments on things. One thing that comes apparent in the judgment process is that it is incredibly slow. Right? Earthly justice feels like it takes forever, doesn't it? The problem, or the reason, is because as humans, we don't know everything. God's judgment takes no time at all because he sees our hearts and he can judge instantly. Humans don't know everything. We have to collect information. We have to interview witnesses. We have to deliberate. We have to hear different sides of the story. We have to give opportunity for response and argument and back and forth. It it takes a long time. But we often don't want to take that time. We rush to immediately judge the words, actions, and behaviors of others. To put it another way, we take the seat of God. Only God can see and judge instantly. And when we see and rush to judgment, we are taking the place of God. Uh, There's an old word for this. It's called censorious. That is the type of judgment that Jesus is speaking against. The word means severely critical or fault-finding or harsh. I could put it in maybe everyday language. It means looking at other people through a magnifying glass. It means taking a magnifying glass and looking at everyone else around us through it that we would see their imperfections, right? their blemishes. And to use the Christian language, we would see their sin. How, do we, how are we guilty of this? How are you and I, as people of God who genuinely want to follow his word, who genuinely want to love and care for our neighbors, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ? How are we at times guilty of this? Let me just give you a few examples. Uh, One example is that we sometimes set higher standards for others than we do for ourselves. We usually do this consciously, but we see behavior from other people and we think to ourselves, man, I would never do that. (laughs) I wouldn't be caught dead doing that. If I were in her shoes, that's not how I would have acted. Sometimes we sort of do this retroactively and in time. We look back and say, well, when I was a kid, I wouldn't have behaved like that. When I was a teenager, I wouldn't have done that. When I had young kids, I wouldn't have interacted with my kids the way that those parents are doing over there. I would have done this, that, or the other differently. We sort of have this, this, this mindset where we think the best of ourselves and the worst of other people. We assign these different standards. Another way we're guilty of judging others is that we assume others' motives for their behavior instead of just asking them. 
We assume the motives of others. Now, if we are following Jesus' words in Matthew 5 and 6, that means we should be regularly evaluating our own motives for our actions to see if we are motivated by sin or selfishness or worldly love and affection. But sometimes we take that and we look at other people and we say, they're doing actions I disagree with, therefore I know exactly why they're doing that. As if we can take, again, the seat of God, see right into their heart. And even worse than assuming other people's motives is that oftentimes we assign sinful motives to their actions. Well, she's doing something I don't like. It must be because she's sinning. It must be because she has some sinful world and life view. It must be because she's selfishly motivated. It must be because he is this, that, or the other. As if we have this x-ray vision onto the sinful motivations of others, and that's what we jump to. I disagree with what they're doing. They must be sinning. Another way we're guilty of judging others is that we can aggravate small mistakes, or we can enlarge small mistakes. We can take a simple, innocent mistake of somebody else, and we can make a huge deal out of it as if it reveals this ugly, sinful nature that lies beneath the the pious exterior, right? I'll put all of this together in a phrase that's helpful for me is that we fail to give others the benefit of the doubt. You know what it feels like when somebody doesn't give you the benefit of the doubt. When they are assuming that you are acting out of your own self-interest instead of assuming the best of you. Frankly, you know what that is to interact with other people that way. I think... Sometimes we have become so frustrated with how the world wrongly tells the church to judge not that we have become blind to our own judgmental spirit. That in fact we can be the the worst of that which Jesus speaks of and how we assume the worst of other people. We fail to give the benefit of the doubt. We aggravate smaller mistakes. We assign sinful motives and on and on and on. Jesus, in as few words and directly as possible, tells us, don't do that. (laughs) Judge not. But then he goes on in the remaining verses, and he tells us why not. Then he tells us what we should do instead. Why should we not judge? The short answer is because it's harmful. Judging other people is harmful. It's harmful to ourselves, and it's harmful to the very people that we are judging. Look at the end of verse one, judge not that you be not judged. So if he's saying, once you open that door, it goes both ways. Or rather, as you judge others, God will judge you. He says in verse two, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is speaking of weights on a scale. That's the the measurement here. So if the measurement you use, the way in which you weigh the actions of somebody else to see if they're good or bad, well, that same weight is going to be used for your actions. You see, the judgmental person presumes the role of God and in so doing, shuts himself off from the path of forgiveness. Because when we start to view ourselves 
by the standard of our own righteousness and not the standard of God's righteousness, man, we don't need his forgiveness anymore, do we? When we start looking at those around us as those other people who need God's forgiveness, but I'm good, we close the door to the stream of his grace. To put it another way, every judgment that we pronounce against somebody else lays a brick in the wall between us and the grace of God. Jesus is warning his people. He is warning you and me in no uncertain terms. It is a precarious position to start judging others. Are you sure that you are ready to take that seat and cast those judgments? The greatest danger Jesus points out about us judging others is it is harmful to ourselves. It builds in us a callous heart that grows more and more untouched by the grace and mercy of God. But it's not only harmful to us, it's harmful to the very person that we're judging. It's harmful to others. And we see this in verses 3 and 5. Here's sort of the, the famous illustration. Uh, it's intended to be a humorous illustration because it's so ridiculous. Right? There's two people. One of them has a splinter in their eye. Uh, you could even translate that a little of a, a speck of sawdust in their eye. The other person has a plank or a log or really, it can be a beam in their eye. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not possible. Jesus is, is, is telling us something to make us chuckle at sort of how ridiculous this situation is. But do you know, there's a, there's a word here we can't miss. Whose eye is the splinter in? It's in your brother's eye. So back to that original question, friend or foe, what we're doing with a friend. We're doing with more than a friend. We're doing with a fellow saint. Redeemed by the grace of God. We're dealing with a sister and a brother in Christ who appears from our limited perspective to have some sort of possible sin in their life that they need some help dealing with. But how are we going to do that? You see the, you see the harm here. I mean, have you ever had some, of course you have, had something stuck in your eye, right? You've had an eyelash in there. You've had a piece of dirt you know, if you work with wood, you've had some sawdust, maybe a splinter in your eye. And you know those times it gets so bad you need a friend to help you get it out, right? And how delicate that is. I mean, to have somebody else sort of, sorry, some of you are getting queasy, like poke around at your eye. I mean, that's, ugh. And you're just, you're trying not to blink and their finger's coming at you. And it's, it's such a delicate process. Now imagine they're doing that with a beam in their eye, Right? Can you imagine how, how terrifying that is? They're coming at you and there's a giant log sticking out of their eye. It's safe to say that you have probably been hurt by this. Maybe not the, the physical, although that certainly hurts. You've had somebody come in a, not a very delicate way to talk about that splinter in your eye. Man, it hurts, right? It is spiritually and emotionally painful. When somebody treats us in, in such an insensitive matter with our very own sin. So Jesus, he warns us. He warns us about this, really this sin of judgmentalism. This sin of rushing to judgment, of placing ourselves in the position of God. And the reason is because it is so harmful to ourselves and it is so harmful to other people. But then he tells us what to do instead. 
Instead of being harmful, we should be helpful. And verse 5 describes what this helpfulness should look like. You see, there's, there's actually a proper way to do this. Despite how ridiculous the illustration is, there actually is a, a bit of a, a, a pattern here, or even steps that Jesus gives over how we should be helpful. We live in the community of God's people, and y'all, we all have stuff in our eyes, right? We are all sinners saved by grace. And part of living in the community of God's people means what? That other people see our sin. And we see other people's sin. So how do we live in this world, in this community, that's not harmful to one another, but it's helpful to one another? Well, Jesus gives us, I think here, just in this one verse, four steps. And the first step is to see the log in your own eye. Now, this in itself is ridiculous, right? If you don't know that you have a giant plank sticking out of your eye, somebody telling you to look at the plank in your eye doesn't really register, does it? If you're already that blind, then how are you going to be remotely aware of the log in your own eye? Well, I believe this calls for a level of self-examination. I think it's self-examination via the means of grace that God has given us. That is his word, his Bible, and prayer. That the Bible, God's word, and prayer, right, our relationship with him are the very means by which he reveals to us the sin in our life, the logs in our eyes. And how, do you, how do you know if you have a log in your eye or not? So let me ask you a couple questions. When's the last time you were convicted of sin? When's the last time you came under conviction of sin from the word of God. If you can't remember, you might have a log in your eye. Let me ask you this. Are there people in your life who are free to call you out on your sin and you will actually listen to them without blowing them off? If there's not, then you might have a log in your eye. What about this? When you have gone to point out sins in other people when you have tried to help them get the speck out of their eye does it actually help or does it make things worse because if it's harmful then you might have a log in your eye so before anything else to see a sin in somebody else should automatically rebound on us before we do anything else we should examine our own lives we should examine our own eyes to see if there's any giant logs sticking out of them. That's the first step. The second step is, is, is just as simple. Remove the log from your own eye. Now, I, I think a log's easier to get out than a splinter, right? But the method is the same. How do we remove sin from our lives? We confess it before God. We repent over it before his throne of grace. And we experience the free forgiveness that is extended to us always and forever through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to do it. There's no plan to get better. Right? There's, no, there's no steps to make up for the harm that the, the log may have caused other people. How do we get the log out of our eye? We confess the sin that we have been blinded to, but is now right in front of our face. And we repent. And we ask for the forgiveness of God, which he always extends to us in Jesus. It's only then, after those first two steps, that we can take the next two steps. And that is to see the speck 
in our brother's eye. Or you've done this, maybe even this morning. Let's be honest. You saw someone in the hall, and you thought to yourself, yeah, he's got a speck in his eye. Right? The way he just said hi to me or didn't say hi to me. (laughs) The way she blew me off. The things she brought up. The way they were talking about that other person. There's something in their eye. Well, what do we do? Let's go back to verse 1. Don't judge. (laughs) Don't judge. Don't judge. Jesus tells us elsewhere to go to our brothers and sisters in Christ. But Before you go to them, and if you're even planning on going to them or not, we should consider a couple things. Number one, before you ever go to somebody, do I still have a judgmental spirit? Do I still have a judgmental spirit towards this person? Paul says in that famous love passage in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you can't honestly say that about your brother and sister in Christ, you have no business going to talk to them. Somebody else's job. It's between them and God. Do you still have a judgmental spirit? If so, go back and work on that log in your own eye. Second question you should ask yourself when you think you see the speck of a sin in your brother or sister's eye is should I just let love cover this sin? Not every sin needs to be confronted, right? 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. You see, John Stott, the, 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 the pastor, clarifies Jesus' meaning and judge not, he says, it's not a requirement that we're supposed to be blind. Rather, it's a plea for us to be generous. It's a plea for us to be generous. So if you've worked through those first three steps, and it's finally time to go to step number four, to remove the speck from your brother and sister's eye. This, of course, is an act of love, isn't it? This is... An act in cooperation with the other person. You can't get the splinter out of somebody's eyes if they don't want you to, right? And of course, this still needs gentleness. Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So what happens if we put all of these pieces together? We have a community of disciples, we have a church that is growing in the grace of God, that is sitting under the ministry of the word and prayer, has a growing awareness of our own sin, a growing awareness of our need for Christ, a church that is marked, a community that is marked by growing in grace through repentance and faith, a people that look around at fellow sinners and we are slow to judge one another. We are gentle with one another. We are tender towards one another. We are eager to give the benefit of the doubt and to extend forgiveness whenever and wherever there is sin. And why is that? Why can this community do this more than anyone else? See, the world says judge not because nothing's wrong in the world, right? The world says there's no sin, there's no need to judge, but the church says, actually, there is sin. And it's out there, but it's a lot of it's in here too. And Jesus still tells us judge not, not because there's nothing to judge, but because we have been judged through the forgiveness of Christ. And the penalty and the weight of our sin has been cast upon him at the cross. And so we who have been 
who have been the recipients of the free grace of Jesus now turn and we love to extend that same free grace to the people of God. You see, the world's command not to judge because there's nothing wrong with anybody gives no hope. Because when we're honest with ourselves, we know there's something wrong with us. The church is a community we enter into with our mess and with our sin, knowing that we're not judged, not because we're perfect, but because the people of God look at us as their God looks at them. Or as Sinclair Ferguson says it, the heart that has tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness will always be restrained in its judgment of others. Have you tasted the Lord's grace and forgiveness? Let me ask it another way. When sinners have interacted with you, do they taste the Lord's grace and forgiveness? Because you can't have one without the other. The first extreme as we interact with other people whose hearts we cannot see is that we rush to judge. You see, the gospel of grace makes us restrained, but as John Stott has already said, it doesn't make us blind. And so we need to see this second extreme in verse 6. The second extreme is a refusal to judge. A refusal to judge in verse 6. We may, in aiming to obey the commands of verses 1 to 5, be so slow to judge that we don't exercise any discernment whatsoever. We exercise no wise discernment. And Jesus is sort of, in verse 6, guarding us against an extreme application of verses 1 to 5. Look at this. It's not a parable, but it uses this, this metaphorical language. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. And so it seems if we look at this that dogs and pigs sort of represent the same thing. And that which is holy and pearls represent the other thing. And so dogs and pigs are clearly animals. Uh, they're unclean animals. I know some of you are dog owners and you might object to this, but I'm telling you that dogs are actually not very clean. And Back in the day, they certainly weren't clean, nor especially were the pigs. It's not just a physical uncleanness. These animals actually represent the uncleanness of the Gentiles. And so it seems that Jesus, in his contrast, not between physical Jews and physical Gentiles, but between spiritual people of God and spiritual rejectors of God, that the dogs and pigs represent, it seems to be, unbelievers. That is, people that do not believe in Jesus, do not trust him for salvation. Now, what about the pearls? Don't throw your pearls before pigs. And that's a weird image, right? When's the last time you were tempted to grab your grandma's pearls and throw them before some pigs? Well, the pearls, the next time Jesus brings up the idea of pearls is in Matthew chapter 13, when he tells the parable of the pearl of great price. And what is he using that pearl as a parable for? The kingdom of heaven. So these are spiritual riches, we might say. That which is holy, that's not even a metaphor. That's just a word that describes the things of God. And so it appears to be the pearls and that which is holy represent the kingdom of God. But look at the last verse, look at the last part of the verse. What do pigs do with these pearls? 
They trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Again, I don't know if you've been attacked by a pig. I haven't. Uh, But I've heard it can actually be sort of terrifying. These dogs and pigs don't represent, it would appear, just anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus. It would appear to represent those who are rejecting the gospel aggressively. It would appear to represent those who willfully despise and hate the message of God and the messengers themselves. Back to our first question, friend or foe? Verse 6 is certainly speaking of those who are a foe. You know what's needed to recognize who's a friend and who's a foe? Well, judgment, of course. This is why Jesus can't be banning all judgment, because right here he tells his people to exercise godly judgment in discerning who are dogs and pigs and who aren't. Because if they're a friend, we give them the benefit of the doubt and we extend forgiveness to them. If they're an aggressive foe that hates God and hates his people, well, we, we interact with them a different way. We don't give what is holy. We don't cast our pearls before them. Now, how do we apply that? The historic application of this, interpretation of this, is in the context of evangelism and missions work. The, the context of taking the gospel to the nations who do not already believe it. Jesus will go on in a couple chapters in Matthew 10, instruct his disciples to go out with the message of the kingdom. And they will to go from town to town and village to village and house to house proclaiming the kingdom. But you remember what he said, if somebody doesn't receive you, he says the disciples are to shake the dust off their feet. It's actually the same thing that happens with the Apostle Paul as he's going forth with the gospel in the book of Acts and he is rejected. So the application that the church has historically applied this verse as saying in your evangelistic efforts, as you encounter hatred and hostility and persecution, it may be wise simply to move on. It may be wise to leave. It may be wise not to continue to throw the pearls of God's grace and his gospel and his kingdom before people who show constant evidence that they will trample it and trample you. It seems that the application of this should be fairly rare in our lives. And it's not something we do with hatred in our hearts. Rather, if we are to move on from someone who has continually and hatefully rejected the gospel We do so with tears, as Jesus wept over the Jerusalem that rejected him. When we must judge, we certainly don't enjoy it. So we have two extremes as we interact with those around us, friends and foes. A rush to judge and a refusal to judge. I wonder as we close, which extreme do you find yourself falling into? Are you too trusting of other people? Or are you too skeptical of others? Are you guilty of undiscerning words and actions? Or are you guilty of a judgmental spirit and attitude towards others? I'm going to go on a limb and say that most of us tend towards the extreme of judgmentalism. We tend towards the extreme of rushing to judge others. 
So let's close where we began, and that is the word from Jesus, to see others as God sees you. And dear Christian, how does God see you? He sees you as a sinner clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He sees you not as somebody who is internally and inherently righteous because you are so good and so wonderful and you, pers- you do such good deeds out of such a good and wonderful heart. Now, the, the, the fact is that when somebody else judges you, you can say to them, man, you don't even know the half of it. <laughs> my God knows the depths of my soul. And he has made redemption for me by the blood of Christ and the righteous gift of his death upon the cross applied to us. So we can heed Paul's words speaking, I believe, in this same spirit as Jesus when he says in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Dear church, may we who have tasted the Lord's grace be vessels of it to others in our lives. Let us pray. Lord, you indeed know the depths of our sin. You know the depths of our suffering and sorrowing and guilty conscience over those very sins. And Lord, if you were to judge, who could stand? And so we praise you this morning that you choose to give your son to stand in between us on the day of judgment that his righteousness might be ours, that his blood might cleanse us whiter than snow. And now, O God, as your redeemed people, teach us and show us how to love. Lord, show us where we have been judgmental in our hearts this very morning. Show us where we have refused to give the benefit of the doubt, where we have made different standards for others where we have assumed sinful motives of our sisters and brothers in Christ, would convict us to the dust that you might restore us according to your gospel of grace and strengthen us by your spirit to go forth heralding Christ and Christ alone and bearing the fruits of good works that comes only by your saving grace at work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.